Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hotel. It's a Wednesday. It is July the 6th, year of our Lord, 2022. Hope you all well. Welcome to Hotel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to unwind some really messy stuff in the headlines and turn down the noise of the news cycle on some important topics today. Loaded show. Uh, very excited about what we have for you. Uh, we're going to go out to Minnesota, where uh, the uh, GOP legislator accidentally passed edibles into law. We'll talk about how that got into being a bit of a mess. Uh, also on the program today, um, great guest. We're going to set it up in the second segment. There's a lot of moving parts over in the UK. We have on our UK friends a lot. Uh, developing stories really started breaking on Tuesday afternoon as we recorded this. Albie Amancona, a great Young Voices contributor over in the UK. He's done a lot of media over there. He's a graduate of London School of Economics. Really, really sharp, smart fellow. Uh, but we're going to have him on and talk about the breaking developments in the UK with Boris Johnson once again on the brink. But also part of that conversation we want to have with him, we're going to talk a little race and racism and what do we do with race in the context of politics and culture, how culture changes how something universal like race relations manifests itself different depending on the cultures and how holding politicians and ourselves accountable is a big part of dealing with those types of issues. I'll be on Cohen. Very excited to have him on the program today. Uh, and the next segment, we're going to set up those developing and breaking stories over in the UK for you. Um, but first, oh, we're going to end the show. Uh, kind of a UK theme today. A food bank got broke into over there. Now, why is that in our uplifting segment? Because of how the community reacted to that. Uh, we'll go to York. Uh, those of you that are Downton Abbey fans like me will recognize that. We'll go over there in our end of the program segment. But let's start here in a real world application. We talk in things like inflation and cost of living when we talk to our UK friend here in a minute. We talk about these things in uh, really high terms sometimes, almost detached. I'm guilty of it too. I do it all the time. We'll start talking about the theories of things and the ideology of things, almost almost like a theological thing instead of a practical thing at church, You know, where they start getting into some deep concept instead of, hey, I'm having a crappy week. I just need to be encouraged here. We tend to do that with things, especially things like inflation, cost of living, gas prices, things like this. Uh, there's a wonderful piece uh, written in the uh, Los Angeles Times. And I mean, wonderful, not because of the subject matter, but because how it was addressed by Nathan Solis, the writer who wrote it up. Um, LA is famous for its street vendors, especially its taco vendors. Um, so this is a great example to kind of maybe bring down the dialogue on things like inflation and food prices and gas prices and cost of living and make it into a real world example. Um, 
on a recent weeknight, this is from the Los Angeles Times, street vendor Renee Oracosa was busy flipping store-bought tortillas on a makeshift grill as she prepared carne asada and chicken tacos for sale near MacArthur Park. Supply costs more these days, and sometimes Ornazoka had to cut back on the meat in her $1.50 tacos. Prices go up, she said, um, from Mexico, but might not matter to hungry people who have money. Rising food and fuel costs have forced some street vendors to ration their supplies or raise their prices based on what some take for granted as convenient and affordable food. But many entrepreneurs, their livelihoods are at stake amid soaring inflations. From April 2021 to April 2022, the prices have jumped 14% for meat, poultry, fish, and eggs, according to the United States, one of the largest increase since 1979, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Vegetables and fruit prices spiked nearly 8%. The cost of propane, which is the main fuel for most vendors' grills, has increased by 26%, an average of $3.08 a gallon. In the waning light of day, smoke from the Avenue 26 Taco Streetside Grill in Little Tokyo wafts through the air, beckoning hungry patrons just getting off work. A bulbous cut of pork crisps on the rotating trompo over an open flame and tortillas are flipped on a Mexican camal. Erasmo Reyes, by the way, uh, my hobble is not great. So as I mispronounce these things, just bear with me, forgive me, and I do apologize. Erasmo Reyes and his son Cesar watched as several cooks prepare carne asada and tacos El Pastor for a steady stream of customers. The stand first opened on Avenue 26 in Lincoln Heights more than a decade ago. During the pandemic, a bustling food night market sprang up, attracting hordes of foodies, more vendors, and eventually problems. The city actually had to shut the night markets down last year over health and safety concerns. Cesar Reyes started working with his father when he was 14, perfecting the family recipes brought from Puebla, Mexico. But when it came clear that the Lincoln Heights location was too crowded, he sought a new location. Over the years, the family had raised the cost of their tacos from 50 cents when they first started out 10 years ago to the current $1.75. But the Reyes family is always the last to increase prices whenever possible. Quote, when everyone saw what we were doing well on Avenue 26, they followed us and cooked food like ours, and they started to raise their prices, but we always made sure we were the last one to raise ours, Chazar said. While food prices are skyrocketing, the Reyes said they also have to consider their loyal patrons. We see that, but right now we have to wait and see, he's meaning the prices. We're not going to raise our prices just yet because we have to think of our customers. A lot of our customers are low-income people who enjoy our food and can't always afford to pay more than $2 for a taco, uh, Cesar Reyes said. You sometimes have customers argue over prices, but we have to tell them that it's not our fault. Prices are going up, and we will continue to make our food the way the customers have always liked it. They don't realize that if we don't raise our prices, we will not be around. Brothers Miguel and Luis Contreras stood with their families in the shade of a school bus parked near the grill stands. Grill said they spent about $60 on food for about six people and another $20 on sodas. Of course, we're aware of inflation, Miguel said, but you work, you come home tired, and you want to eat, so you try to get some food. It can't be helped. We have to feed our families, Luis said. I know gas is expensive and almost $7 in places, but I still have to drive to work. This is in California. It's higher than the national average. That's why he's saying $7. The brothers work at a party supply store. They and their families eat at taco stands maybe once a week now because the price increase in groceries. I don't pay attention to the price of the tacos. Maybe I should, but I don't. I don't usually ask. The atmosphere in the parking lot has a communal vibe as people tailgate and eat their food. Kelsey McCoy and Sandra Gow 
bring out-of-town visitors here all the time. They're probably the best in town. We keep going back. Even as the prices go up a little more, they're going up everywhere. Even the hot dogs wrapped in bacon that you see outside the Staples Center are so expensive now. They're like almost 9 bucks. So $1.75 taco is still a bargain. Also, like $12 for my quesadilla, it's way too much, Perez said. The food is good, but maybe too much. I don't want it to be more than if I went to sit down in a restaurant. I think people don't understand the true cost of food, Rudy Espinoza, an executive director with the nonprofit Inclusive Action uh, and Advocacy Group. Customers see a street vendor and they may assume it's affordable or should be affordable, and they may sort of sneer if the prices go up. They may expect food to just be affordable all the time, and that's just not real. An interesting real-life perspective on cost of living, food, gas prices, propane prices, all these things affect people. And the lower down the economic strata you go, the more it affects you, especially food prices and fuel prices. If that's your livelihood making food and you need fuel to do it. And for folks trying to get a cheap way to get food for the working class folks, those prices mean a lot. Those couple of cents here and there mean a lot. And sometimes we, I'm guilty of this too. We talk about these things in really high terms. Maybe this will be a little bit better way of explaining the crisis as it exists in real world terms. Besides, who doesn't like a good street taco? It's one of the best things in the world. More hotel right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Dr. Hertel, uh, I want to set up uh, the background on what we're going to be talking about with our guest, Abby Amankona, who's joining us from the UK today. Uh, we kind of had breaking news. We do pre-record that segment. So some of this changed as we were recording this. This was going down. Uh, if you're listening to this as the Wednesday morning program, which it's intended to be, uh, PMQ going to be lit. Probably going to want to watch that. Uh, but over in the UK, things are developing rapidly. Uh, Sky News, uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, can expect a torrid time today as he faces both prime minister questions and the parliamentarian liaison committee less than 24 hours after Rishi Sunak and Savid Javid dramatically resigned as members of his cabinet on Tuesday evening, 
Chancellor, Mr. Sunak, Chancellor of the Exeter is uh, roughly would be the Treasurer Secretary, although much, much more important to their government than it is uh, here. And Health Secretary, Mr. Javid, which is also important because remember they have the NHS uh, National Health System, uh, universal health care over there, leading to a wave of resignation. A total of 10 conservative MPs left their position, two cabinet ministers, one minister, four parliamentarian private secretaries one vice chair, and two trade envoys. The resignations have left the prime minister battling to remain in office in the face of questions about his handling of the row over the MP Chris Pritchard's conduct. We won't go into it. He is uh, very credibly accused of gross misconduct. Uh, You can read it for yourself. Um, Mr. Pritchard quit as deputy chief whip last week after claims that he groped two men at a private member's club, but Mr. Johnson said He had been told about concerns about his behavior dating back several years. Mr. Sunak's resignation letter published on Twitter, he said he could no longer remain loyal to the prime minister, who remains mired in scandals over the appointment of Mr. Pritchard, among other things. The former chancellor, tipped as a potential future leader of the conservative party, told the prime minister he was quitting with, quote, great sadness. This is the quote from the resignation letter. To leave ministerial office is a serious matter for me to step down as chancellor while the world is suffering the economic consequences of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine and other serious challenges is one I have not taken lightly. However, this is from the resignation letter, quote, the public rightly expects government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously. I recognize this may be my last ministerial job, but I believe these standards are worth fighting for. And that's why I'm resigning in his resignation letter. Mr. Javid, also a former chancellor, having quit the cabinet once before, said the people, quote, expect integrity from their government. Voters now believe the current administration was neither competent nor, quote, acting in the national interest. It goes on to detail the rest. We'll link to this in the piece, but a little bit of background uh, before we talk to Albie about the breaking news that was going on over there. As we talk to him, uh, we will keep abreast of this. Stay tuned. We'll get to that conversation with Albie Amankona right after this on Hurt Tell. Okay, very excited about this guest. Been wanting to get him on for a few weeks, but he's a very in-demand, busy feller, but we're thrilled to have him with us. Another Young Voices contributor. This is a very smart man. Put him in your information rotation. I've really enjoyed listening to him, and I'm thrilled to talk to him and now call him a friend, Albie Amancona. How are you, sir? Thank you very much for joining us here on Hertel. Andrew, it's good to be here. I don't know whether to say good morning or good evening, but it's good to be on the show nonetheless. Yeah, as we're recording the afternoon in the U.S., uh, it's evening in London. It's been a very, very busy news day uh, for the U.K., so let's just start right there. We were going to talk about it anyway, but in the last few hours, uh, we've had some breaking news. Again, we're recording this, so if you're listening to this on Wednesday morning, uh, these things may have changed, but we've had some very high-profile resignations. For the American audience who doesn't understand what a chancellor of the Exeter is and these sorts of things, uh, these two gentlemen that resigned, how, who are they, first of all, in the government, and why is that a big deal that's kind of changed the narrative on this a little bit? So the two gentlemen that have resigned, I'll start with the health secretary because that's probably relatively easy for an international audience, but the health secretary is in charge of the NHS and healthcare for England. 
um, and then also social care as well uh, for England. As uh, so he essentially runs the NHS, was instrumental in the the sort of the, the, the response to COVID and a lot of the COVID regulations and the rules that came in place after Matt Hancock had to stand down last summer for the affair that he had with one of his advisors at the time. Um, so that's Sajid Javid, who was the health secretary. He was actually also previously home secretary and previously the chancellor. Um, and then he stood down, the, Sajid Javid stood down as chancellor and Rishi Sunak took over as chancellor. Um, and the chancellor of the exchequer is essentially the person that is, in, that is in charge of the treasury, which is in charge of things like taxation, uh, things like government spending, um, and essentially has the purse strings of the United Kingdom. So two very powerful figures over the past two years in charge of the COVID policy um, and the COVID response. Yeah. And for the visual, if you watch prime minister questions on Wednesday morning, these the last couple of weeks, these are the two guys that sit right beside Boris Johnson. Uh, that's who they are uh, to the outside observer. Uh, when you're having crises and things like this, these are both ambitious men. Both of them have been named for you know a future in politics. What part of this is the current crisis? Because let, let's be adults here. They're not really learning anything about Boris Johnson. They don't already know. They know this man very intimately over a number of years. They've decided for their own self that they need to step away and separate from him. So how do we parse that out in the visuals of this and also in the politics of it? My personal view is, is that I think it is unlikely that either of these two gentlemen would end up as a, as a real serious contender um, for, for the leadership of the Conservatives, for the leadership of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. Sanjay Javid has actually already tried a few times and, and didn't get very far. And Rishi Sunak was involved in quite a serious um, tax scandal earlier on this year with his wife's non-dom status. She, was, she had a, a basically a, a tax status that wasn't entirely in the United Kingdom. And because she is the daughter of a billionaire, that was a lot of money that she was saving. And that was seen as, as quite a big blow to any future leadership bids for Rishi Sunak. So I actually do think that these men have done this for moral reasons rather than to further their own careers. And in fact, in his resignation letter, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, acknowledged that this might actually be his last ministerial position. Does that give this heft? Because let's let's go to the guy who does have the job that this is all centered around, Boris Johnson. It's just been a drip, drip, drip this year. He ha he'll have a high moment and then we have a personal crisis, usually some somewhat self-inflicted, let's just be honest. Um, he'll have a high point, he'll get out of a scandal, and then another scandal comes is this going to give more weight than the last one? Because we've done this Boris Johnson resignation watch before. We've done it a few times. The British press is treating this like it's a lot bigger deal and more imminent. You're there, we're not, you tell us. Does it feel like that to you that this is different this time? I would always be hesitant to predict the downfall of Joris, Boris Johnson. But this, to me, it does feel different because what all of the other... Uh, scandals were missing were these big cabinet resignations. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer is essentially the most important cabinet position after the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary, because of how important the National Health Service is in the United Kingdom, is also a very important cabinet position. To have both of those uh, resignations literally happen within minutes of each other, Andrew, they were announcing both of these resignations, is quite a big blow. But there is nothing constitutionally which forces a Prime Minister to resign. Uh, after cabinet ministers uh, actually, you know, resign themselves. So what some people are thinking 
thinking is that he could hold on until the 1922 committee has its elections in a couple of weeks' time and what we think might happen with the 1922 committee, which is essentially like a trade union of the Conservative Party, is that it could elect essentially a bunch of rebels to the executive who could change the rules on when leadership, on when votes of confidence rather can happen. Um, and then it could usher in a vote of confidence before Conservative Party conference in October. Yeah, Albie Amonko joining us. Break this down for the American audience or the international audience a little bit, though, because this is the parliamentary system. So Boris Johnson is the leader of the party, but he's also a member of the parliament. So in order for him to go, if he's not going to resign on his own, which everybody close to Boris says that's his ultimate nightmare, he does not want to resign in disgrace. If he decides to fight this, there's a lot of process involved here because basically what you're doing is the party is trying to take itself back from him being the leader. This isn't like the American system with the president where, you know, we, we've never removed a president from office through impeachment. We've had him impeached but not convicted. This, there's a lot of dirty uh, processes here that are kind of unclear and kind of uncharted territory, really, if he decides to really fight this, isn't it? Because if he doesn't want to go, it's going to be hard to make him go, isn't it? Yes, it will be hard to make him go, but the Conservative Party has always been ruthless when it's come to getting rid of its leaders. So, so the process that would happen if he chooses not to resign is there is a committee, as I said before, the 1922 committee, which is essentially like a trade union of backbench MPs. Now, the, back, now that the, the 1922 committee has a, an executive committee which is in charge of all of the leadership rules in the Conservative Party. Now, at the moment, confidence votes can only happen once every 12 months, and there was a confidence vote just two weeks ago, uh, which would mean under current rules, there cannot be another one for 12 months. But there are elections for the 1922 committee executive coming up. And the rebels essentially want to highlight to hijack those elections, electing a bunch of MPs who want to change the 1922 committees so that so that a vote of confidence could happen before the 12 month period and then usher in a new vote as quickly as possible. And then if he were to lose a majority of Conservative MPs support, uh, he would be he would be ousted as prime minister and there would be a leadership election. Yeah. And the other option here that some have been talking about is they think it would be a desperate move. Would Boris Johnson call a general election and take his chances? So this is something which I've heard periodically over the last couple of weeks. It is actually something which the prime minister has denied. It would be a very high risk strategy. Andrew, because the Conservatives aren't doing too well in the polls. They're not doing, it's not sort of a, a, 19, a 1990s level of polling disaster that we saw with Tony Blair and Sir John Major, but we are, you know, a good seven or 10 points behind Labour in the polls really quite consistently now for a couple of months. So it wouldn't seem to me to be an electorally prudent decision to go to the electorate right now to vote, to vote uh, in a general election. We've already had many over, well, since Brexit, really, since 2015. I think there have been three general elections and we, we don't need a fourth one. Yeah, Albi Amankoa joining us from over in the UK. Uh, crisis reveals things. Crisis brings pressure. Pressure reveals fault lines. How much of the political stuff that's going on in Parliament, and, and to be fair here, the Labour uh, Party has not exactly been covering themselves in glory either, although Boris is going to get all the headlines because of this. There, there, it's been kind of a mess the last few weeks. How much of this is the crisis, the cost of living crisis? Every time we talk to our UK friends over there, they're like, oh, no, this is all anybody's talking about is cost of living. There is some international stuff. Northern Ireland's a mess. At, at some point, 
is there a feeling in England that the government, he, Boris Johnson's line has always been, we're going to get on with it. We're going to get on about the business. He's done that to that point. Does it feel like the government is kind of grinding down and getting under the weight of all this? And with the cost of living crisis, that's just so much more pressure. And that's bringing a lot of these fault lines out. Undoubtedly, the biggest issue facing the British people at the moment is the cost of living crisis. You know, we've got inflation at nine point uh, at nine point one percent. We've got fuel prices spiraling out of control. We've got gas companies not passing on the government fuel duty cut onto consumers. People are really feeling the punch. And to the government's credit, they have actually come out with quite an unprecedented package uh, in support to the British people. A lot of people argue that it's not necessarily a conservative way to handle a cost of living crisis by essentially handing out money to people. Other people like me would perhaps for tax cuts, but nonetheless, no one can argue that the government isn't at least trying to solve the problem. But all of that, Andrew, is being overshadowed uh, by the way that the Prime Minister and indeed Number 10, supported by the rest of the Cabinet, respond to what can actually be uh, quite simple events that just require a good response from the Prime Minister and a good response from the government, and none of that seems to have been happening. Why is the comms on the small things? And I don't, and I'm not meaning small as in um, trivial matters because these are serious matters, but he does good on Brexit. He had that wonderful optic of him walking around Kiev. You know, he, all, he seems to get the big stuff and get in the mainstream of the British people on a lot of that stuff. And it's just self-inflicted wounds on all this other stuff. Like just come out and say the truth about like Partygate happened. Everybody went, okay, there's going to be a photo come out at some point. Like everybody kind of felt that one coming, you know, self-inflicted over and over and over again, letting this minister, and I don't want to get into the allegations because they still got to go to the process, but you know, ministers that you know are problematic hang around because you needed the votes and that's the way it looked. Why is it, is it just part of his personality, that big outward personality that he just sometimes doesn't handle this small stuff? Because it's almost baffling yeah, this is part and parcel with who Boris Johnson is, isn't it? I wouldn't necessarily describe them as small things. I would probably describe them as things which should be easy to handle. It should not be difficult to handle a situation where an MP is has allegations of sexual assault against them, which are then upheld. It should not be difficult not to promote that person to a position where they're essentially handling the pastoral care of conservative backbench MPs. That should be an easy thing to handle. The Partygate saga should have been, in my opinion, an easy thing to handle. It just required honesty. Um, and what a lot of Boris loyalists will say is he's got all of the big calls right. But when there are so many of these easy things to handle, which are handled abjectly terribly, it piles up and it ends up in a situation like this where we've got two senior cabinet ministers resigning. And I think this all actually stems from the Paston scandal last year. So this has been going on uh, since around October or November time last year. Yeah. Albie Amancona joining us. That's why we have him. He says it way more elegantly than I did and got to the point much better from my bad question. Well done, sir. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. That's the headlines coming out of Britain as today. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk some culture stuff, uh, his work on race. We're going to talk about how this is a universal human issue, but culture does seem to affect how it manifests itself quite a bit. Also talking some more about our friends over yonder from our side of the pond. Albie Amancona continues to join us on her tell right after this break.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Albie Omencona, great man who has a great insight on things. He's done a lot of media in the UK, probably not as familiar to an American audience. Please make sure you're following him. He is a graduate of London School of Economics, really sharp fellow. Okay, I want to talk about the race stuff, but let's start with the organization you've been working with. Um, Carf, just if, just way of introduction, just explain to people what that is and why you saw a need for that uh, with your colleagues that do that with you. Absolutely. So founded Conservatives Against Racism uh, two summers ago with some fellow Conservative Party activists, really as a response to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in London and how we felt that that whole race relations debate was not being conducted in the most constructive way. Um, And I'm fundamentally of the belief that Britain is best run under Conservative governments. And that means uh, that as the demographic change happens in the United Kingdom, that is going to require um, more people from all different backgrounds in the UK, including ethnic minorities, to vote for the Conservative Party. I do not think it is a good enough reason, Andrew, for people not to vote for the Conservative Party because of the wrong perception that the party is racist and that they feel that they are a race traitor for doing so. You know, the values of having a a small state, low tax, pro-business, pro-family environment where aspiration and self-reliance are important uh, are not values which are ascribed to one particular race. In fact, I would argue that my, my grandparents who came over here in the 1950s had those exact beliefs that many conservatives have today. You mentioned your grandparents and your own history. Uh, Migration and immigration are obviously very hot topics uh, in the UK. The UK has always had a history of this. Where is it really at? Turn the noise down of the news of just what we're seeing from the outside, Um, whether it's the channel stuff, the Rwanda stuff. um, Just turn the noise down and tell us the average person in England and the UK where are they at on things like immigration and race? Is it a day-to-day problem for folks? Is it better than it was? Is it worse than it was? Where are we at with it, do you think? It's really interesting. It's a really interesting question, actually, Andrew, because when it comes to legal migration, if we actually look at the net migration figures for this year, and actually since Brexit, I think it's the highest that they've ever been. And yet in terms of, of, of where migration is and immigration is rather on the agenda of the British people, it's actually come down since Brexit because there's this perception now that having left the uh, European Union single market and no longer being uh, uh, forced to to adhere to freedom of movement, that there is this idea of having control of migration. So on the legal side of migration, Andrew, I would say that the British people are, it's, it's it's not something which bothers that many people compared to when we were in the European Union. It was really something that was quite up high on the political agenda. You had numerous uh, Conservative governments pledging to get my net migration figures back into the tens of thousands. That has now been dropped and it's not really caused that much of an issue. But then on the illegal, illegal side, it really has become much more of an issue. This, this issue of the channel boats crossing uh, has really captured the minds of the British public and many people want to, su- want to see that sort of illegality and suffering and exploitation stopped and that is what the government is attempting to do um, rather badly some might say or rather well others might say with the Rwanda policy. Let's let's talk about the cultural difference for a second because race is a universal problem across humanity. But it really does seem like whatever culture you're in dictates how that manifests itself. 
for, you know, America, of course, we have our, our racial issues in history. We're having a problem where we can't even talk about it right now, but we have our civil rights movement, obviously slavery in the past. Um, England's a little different. England abolished slavery ahead of us. But then at the same time, with all our racial problems, when you talk about Europe, you guys use uh, soccer and football, football to use soccer to us, a lot talking about race because that's how it gets in the headlines a lot. We don't have to have empty stadiums for sporting events either. What is it about different cultures that race and racism tends to manifest differently because of that? Is it just the human nature part of it or is part of that how the governments and the cultures are dealing with things? I think it's a bit of both. I also think it's part, part, partially to do with history and actually how migrants ended up getting this country and whether or not you would even kind of class people of different skin colors migrants. You know, in the US, it's a very different situation to Europe when you've got African-Americans and, and white Americans or however you describe uh, white European Americans. I'm not sure of the exact terminology, but you wouldn't argue, I didn't think that an African-American was any more or less of an immigrant than a wasp was, for example, at least that's a view from the United Kingdom. Whereas in Britain, of course, all black people that live in Britain are sort of two, three, four generations from being migrants. So I say that my grandparents came here in the 1950s. So I think the history of Europe and the history of America is very different. We also didn't have slavery here on British shores, even though, of course, we were major beneficiaries from the slave trade. We didn't actually live with slaves in Britain in the same way that you did in the South in America. So a lot of those uh, segregation laws which were in place in the US, which held, I guess, African-Americans back didn't exist to the same extent in Britain. So I think the history um, of how immigrants got to this country or how people of darker skin tones got to Britain and got to America um, is a key differentiator in how race manifests today. Is, does the UK look at places like America? What, what's the perception of our way of handling race uh, from overseas? Because I know, look, I lived in Europe two different times. It, the perception is different that we just have a different kind of race problem in America. What is it right now? What's the perception? You, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter protests. There's been other things. Um, some of that tried to port over to England, the various different effects. What is the perception of, of how America handles race from your view over there? I think my perception of how America handles race is that things seem to be going awry. On one side of things, on the left wing of politics, the sort of democratic view, you've got critical race theory infiltrating, you know, what used to be uh, quite a quite a peaceful and reasonable civil rights movement. And it's turned into this movement where, uh, you know, the going mentality is that all white people are racist and that there is absolutely nothing that any black person can do as an individual to rid themselves of this structure of racism, which has been created around them and everything, you know, everything to do with American society holds that back. And then you've got the other side of politics, which seems to not really accept racism as a problem at all. And then you mix in your, um, your, 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 your different situation, let's say, on, on gun laws and gun rights. And it seems to create a tinderbox, uh, which we just don't really have in Europe, or I wouldn't argue that we have in Europe. And that's not to say that I think that we're handling race better in Europe. I just think some of the factors that we have make it less of a, make it less of a fraught issue. Yeah, we definitely have some built-in cultural stuff that we have not worked out amongst ourselves. That's a very fair criticism. Like, like I said, we're, we're at a point where we're having trouble. We haven't developed a common language on how to talk about race, I think is a good way to explain it. 
And I don't know that we're anywhere close to doing that, but we're going to keep working on the issues. There's one thing you did with this organization that I found really interesting. Uh, there's plenty of great organizations. They talk, they advocate, they do social media. Y'all took it one step forward. You're getting people to put their names on what you're trying to do. And I'm talking MPs, members of parliament. That would be the equivalent to our Congress people. Why is it important to you and your organization? It's right on the front page of your website. Why is it so important for you to get them to put their names on it, to get them to commit to these principles, put their faces on it? Um, race is one of those things where getting accountability for it is really, really hard, but you seem to make it a center point of what you're trying to do. I find that admirable. Why is that important to y'all, though? It's important to have buy-in, I think, from across the Conservative Parliamentary Party with any political uh, organisation that you are running, whether or not that is an organisation which is calling for lower taxes. I'm involved in lots of those or organisations which are calling for better trade relations with the US, like Conservative Friends of America are doing a very good job of doing that, or, um, or grouping around, around solving the problem of race relations and, 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 and selling that Conservative dream of aspiration, hope and, and pride in country um, to ethnic minorities across Britain. It's important to get that parliamentary buy-in because ultimately it is parliamentarians who are the people who are in the position to be uh, making those arguments in parliament and, and changing laws and passing legislation and actually earlier on this year the government re released its response to uh, what was seen as quite a controversial report on race relations, the civil report, the uh, Inclusive Britain strategy came out earlier on this year, um, and there are 76 policy actions which are going to be taken forward and implemented over the rest of this parliament. Um, so if you do get MPs bought in on your mission, you can make real change, and that is something that we were campaigning the government to do for a long time. One thing that the uh, and the left and the right a little differently over there, but just for the sake of uh, common discussion, one thing the left in America has done better than the right has when it comes to things like race is understanding that you just cannot talk about race without talking about also talking about economics and cultural things. What is it in the conservative party over there? You are you mentioned things like lower taxes. Obviously, the cost of living uh, situation is just crushing everybody right now. That's on everybody's mind. This would seem like the perfect moment to educate folks of like, look, it's indisputable that racism changed. The perceptions of racism changed based on economic strata. People look at poor people of race differently than rich people of race. How is this not a moment where even though we're having a crisis, we should take it and make it a teachable moment and go, look, you have to talk about economic and policy when you talk about race. They've got to go hand in hand. Is that something that conservatives are going to be able to do in the near future, do you think? I think it is going to be difficult for a Conservative Party at the moment with the economic economic agenda that it has had to start selling this sort of Thatcherite, Reagan, sort of low tax, small state, uh, pro-business environment conservatism that, that lifts everyone up and makes, you know, countries and even the world a more prosperous society. But I do think that has to be at the core of any discussions um, around race, race relations and any discussions around race relations and being a conservative, because those principles of economic empowerment, of self-reliance, of financial freedom um, are not reserves of people who are of a certain skin colour. Um, and actually, I think if you actually look at a lot of um you know a lot of the 
black famous people in this country you know if we're thinking a lot about, about a lot of athletes a lot of rappers or people high up in business they all share those principles but very few of them vote for the conservative party and we need to change that perception and that's what me, me and my organization are trying to do how much of it uh, we talk so much about culture even on our own show here culture and politics because you just can't unwind that ball they go too much together over there in the UK, and you can speak on it to the American side too if you want to, but in Europe wider, how much of this is more of a cultural problem than a policy problem? Because let's be honest, there's only so much policy that can change human behavior. You can only legislate so many things. How much of it is going to be a cultural fix or even probably a generational fix maybe is a better way to term it, as opposed to a policy fix? I know we need to do both at the same time, but what do you think the balance there is? I do think it is primarily a cultural fix because you actually look at the 76 policy, the policy policies being brought forward by the government and their inclusive British strategy. There are policies that, in fact, um, left wing, well, people on all wings of politics have been calling for for a very long time and especially anti-racist campaigners. And these are being put forward by a conservative government. So I think the policies are there. I do personally think it is something which is more cultural. It's about how we talk about race. It's about how we sell this broader idea of, of, of capitalism to a generation of younger people who feel that maybe capitalism hasn't quite worked for them. A lot of us aren't able to afford to buy our own homes. A lot of us aren't able to participate in the labour market with the same job security as our parents had done. You know, we're even we're even experiencing a fertility crisis because people just don't feel like they have the economic fundamentals to have children and i think this builds into this whole this general feeling that capitalism more broadly needs a, a bit of a control alt delete moment um, and i think this is part of that moment let's just deal with that there in a the minute we have remaining though what's the language we should be using because like you just said we need to be able to discuss it What's a better terminology? Do we need some new nomenclature? Because, and and I want, you know, one of my core principles has always been, you know, economic freedom is freedom. Because if you can't eat and you can't take care of your family, that's going to trump everything else. So like you just said, how do we marriage those things? What's some of the better language we should be using in nomenclature, do you think? I think we've got to stop being so liberal with the word racist. To be fair, when I say we, I mean the commentariat and, and the media more broadly, I think is, is, is really overusing that word to a point where for some instances it doesn't really mean anything anymore um i think but on the other side as well i think we've got we've got to stop all of this this woke anti-woke nonsense because no no one's that when people use words like woke and when people use words like anti-woke it's, it's they're very nebulous phrases and no one really knows what they mean we've, we've got to be specific if we are talking about how are we going to improve the educational outcomes of black Caribbean boys? That's what we need to be talking about. If we are going to be talking about how do we replicate the educational success of the British East Asian community uh, for the rest of British children, we need to be specific about that. We need to be specific with the language that we're using and not use these nebulous terms like institutionally racist or woke or anti-woke we need to be specific, targeted, and that's how we'll move forwards. How do we, because racism, by the very definition of the term, is a people problem. How do we make people understand that it is a people problem that you have to deal with on a personal level? Because I think that's where a lot of the disconnect, I, you know, on social, you know, everybody's 10 foot tall and bulletproof on social media and say it's whatever they don't. 
in their daily lives, their daily interactions with their communities and things like that. How do we talk about that issue on an interpersonal basis? Because like you said, we, we use racism way too fast usually, although there are some racists. Most of it is prejudice and born out of ignorance. Uh, how do we use the language change in that situation to make this back to a people problem and kind of make it everybody's problem to work on a little bit as opposed to just something we're yelling about on social media? Genuinely, and this is going to sound very British of me to your audience, but I just think we need to get our manners back. And this is not just on the issue of race relations. I think this is just on any issue which is discussed on social media nowadays. It just descends into people hurling insults at each other and then trying to get each other fired for saying something which is wrong and not really giving people the same um, respect and chances that you would if you were having a face-to-face conversation with that person. I think our human relationships have become uh, less human in a way. So it's harder for us to see that other point of view. It's harder for us to give that ground, to let someone make a mistake apologize and then learn from it. And that's actually one of the cool parts of my campaign at Conservatives Against Racism. There will be people that say things which are wrong, but as long as they learn from that situation, show some contrition after that situation and then behave differently afterwards, we should allow people to to, to make that journey on their own and commend them for it afterwards. Yeah, what a concept to have a little graciousness with folks. That, that would cure a lot of our societal ills, I think. Uh, Albie Amon-Cohen, what a wonderful conversation. We will have you back uh, very soon, my friend. But until we get you back on the show again, let folks know where they can be following you on social media, your organizations you're working with, and all the things you have going on over there, my friend. Absolutely. Well, it's been great to speak to you, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me, uh, anyone that's found Anything that I've said, reasonably interesting. And no worries if you don't, you can find me at um, at Albie Amancona on Twitter. And then the website is carfe.org. Yep. And his uh, social media information is in the lower third graphic there. If you're watching on YouTube, Facebook or the Big Talker app, Uh, we will do this again very soon. Hope to have you back. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it, my friend. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, sir. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, a continuing theme. Uh, we joke about things like pass it so we can find out what was in it type of legislation and how uh, our legislative betters don't actually usually read the bills. They just pass them because they were told to, and most of them are written either by staff or the interest groups or whoever the case may be. Uh, Minnesota, we have an extreme example that's a little bit funny. Uh, Minnesota accidentally, according to some of them, legalized edibles. Um, Huffington Post covered this, said it is unclear if state Senate leaders fully realized the law would legalize Delta 9 THC edibles before they agreed to pass it. 
Um, Senator Jim Abeler admitted to the Star Tribune he thought the new law would require only Delta-8 THC products and didn't realize the new law would legalize edibles with any type of THC. Delta-8 and Delta-9 are both cannabinoids, but Delta-9 is more common and easier to extract, while Delta-9 is more potent. It also has the same side effects, including mental fog. Delta-8 tends to just relax people. I thought we were doing a technical fix, and it winded up having a broader impact than I expected, Abler said. Uh, he seemed surprised that the amendment passed on a unanimous voice vote saying that doesn't legalize marijuana. We just didn't do that, of which he noted he laughed after saying that. Or are you kidding? Responded Tina Leibenberg, a Democrat from Rochester, according to the reformer. Of course you have. No, just kidding. We'll do that next. High times up in Minnesota. Sorry, couldn't help it. More hotel right after this. Hurtel. Okay, good news segment. Uh, we always try to end on an uplifting note. This one starts bad, but comes out good over in the UK, since we've been heavy on the UK on this episode. Uh, York, uh, a food bank, says it was overwhelmed the support it received after its entire stock was stolen last week. Two people forced to open a storage cupboard at the I Am Reusable base in York and, quote, stripped the main food shed of everything, the charity said. Organizer John McGall said there had been an absolute fantastic response. From the locals, I love this quote. Listen, to this we've even had people who used to come to the food bank actually come back with items of food as well. A local business has offered to pair uh, the damage, and people have donated supermarket food deliveries and helped replenish the goods. Mr. McGall said a man and a woman were seen breaking into the cabinets, and when they were challenged by a neighbor, they said, "Quote: We can take what we want. It's a food bank." North Yorkshire police are investigating the theft. Uh, despite the break-in of the food bank uh, based near the city center, still managed to get food parcels out over the weekend and now have more food than they started with. Uh, speaking on BBC Radio York, Mr. McGall said the organization fed more than 100 people a day and demand was likely to grow when the school summer holiday started. So uh, make sure you're checking on each other. Food banks are really important and over there, also here in America. Check out what's going on in your own community. Make sure if you've got anything extra or you can buy a few extra things at the grocery store, make sure you're helping each other out. But cool story there. I love that line about how people that had came to the food bank before came back and brought food back to help others out. That'll do it for Hertel today. Hope you enjoyed the program. Uh, we so appreciate you, and we would love to hear from you at Hertel Show on the gmail.com at Hertel Show on the Twitter. We would love to hear from you either which way. Let us know what you're thinking, feeling, and enjoying about the show. That'll do it for us. So wherever, so wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed, and we will talk to you again soon for more Hertel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So,